Any more? That's it? Come on, Frank, they're starving. Well, what do you know? Thanks, Harry. I saw you fight. Harry Noble, the human locomotive. Come on, Harry, say something. Talk to me. Come on, Frank, get on with it. Tremendous right. Tremendous. Never says a word. Just, just watches TV. Loves the commercials. Hello and welcome back to Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast. The podcast where we take a look through the apartment building of Amblin' Entertainment to meet its residents and see what stories they have to share. I am one half of your hosts, Andrew Godian. And I am the other half, Joshua Glenn. And in today's episode, we are very happy to be joined by our friend and writer, Steph Brandhuber. Welcome to Ramblin', Steph. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolute delight to have you here. <laughs> I am very excited to speak about space robots with you both. So <laughs> this, this, I'm, I'm hyped for this. Me too. Awesome. I, I, I have no idea what you guys make of this, so this is going to be a really exciting discussion that we're going to have. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, me, me and Steph met on a our MA in film at King's College London, and and I already knew from right there and then that she's got. A great knowledge of film and is an incredible writer and and i'm so happy to get into into this with you because I, I love everything you put out and I, I i just know you're gonna have some very interesting insights into the world of world of ambling with this one oh, <laughs> thank you yeah now the um our ma seems like an absolute lifetime ago but <laughs> but great memories great memories and um yeah if anything that was just sort of the point where I had decided to do the MA because I always loved film and I'd done um, film as my sort of um, for undergrad, um, not as mm. my major, but as my mi minor. So, yeah, so that was really the time when I kind of got to bust open the doors of film and kind of took <laughs> it from there and, and yeah, and proceeded to do some writing about film and write for some film websites and just kind of explored in my own kind of way. Perfect. And uh, I, I've missed having you as a film festival buddy in in a in actual person because we managed to kind of coordinate a London Film Festival in last year in 2020 online, but it wasn't quite the same. No, <laughs> it wasn't quite the same. I mean, obviously, great to sort of be exchanging texts and like, oh, did you see this? Or oh, something. Um, Tilda Swinton's coffee pot. I know. I've got that coffee pot. <laughs> so there's but there was no. There was no coordinated Zoom viewings or anything like that. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, we kind of, I think we all sort of coordinated like, oh, I'm watching this film. I'm going to be watching this film. So um, there were some some fun kind of synced up chats, but it's not quite the same thing as being inside the cinema or inside the screening room with someone and sort yeah. of giving each other some side eye looks if something strange happens or, you know, <laughs> laughing along with someone. So, but definitely looking forward to getting back to actual 
film fest yes live screening definitely (laughs) (laughs) and you've clearly got a deep love of films but where does kind of like would you say ambling kind of comes into that into that uh love affair with cinema (laughs) i mean ambling is just nostalgia for me it's just pure nostalgia but it's not even it's weird because it's nostalgia for my childhood and the films that i watched during my childhood but it's it's a weird one because a lot of the films that i watched during that period of time it's kind of nostalgia for a time period that i wasn't even alive in because some of my favorites Mm. are definitely from the 80s the late 80s and it's these films that clearly you know have kind of been passed on to me by you know my mom who loved these films and who would record them on vhs tapes or whatever so it's it's you know it's that kind of comfort and that nostalgia and um yeah i guess that's kind of what i think about when i think about amblin films but it's it's one of those things as well that i don't think i even realized that so many of these films that i loved were actually amblin until Mm -hmm, yeah you were kind of you guys were discussing this whole project and sending off you know the sort of list the link of all these Amblin films. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's Amblin. Oh, wait, that is. Because that uh, makes sense. Yeah, because those kind of details, even though I'm, you know, very much film person, sometimes the details of, you know, production and stuff, it's sometimes it just passes me by. I'm like that. I kind of, I watch a film. I either like the film, I don't like a film, I'll have opinions about it. But some of the sort of finer details, I'm, I'm not too you know, hung up on. So when I discovered that some of these were Amblin, I was like, okay, now I'm connecting the dots. I'm seeing a theme here. This all makes sense. So (laughs) that's that's kind of, that was my journey with Amblin, I'd say. Nice. What are the kind of ones that typify an an Amblin movie for you? Are there kind of specific examples? We've had a lot of E.T. Everyone does always seem to go for E.T. (laughs) E.T. was like never a huge one for me, but actually The Money Pit, which I listened to your guys and was great. I love, yeah, so I had some thoughts. I had some thoughts. (laughs) Okay, let's read it together. Get Griff Griff on the phone. Bring him in as well. We'll we'll get stuck into this, guys. (laughs) I think that sounds like a great idea. So I love love The Money Pit. Um, Obviously, like Back to the Future, um, to Wong Fu, I love To Wong Fu. That's one of my absolute faves. Hook, I mean, Hook is my childhood, essentially. So that's, you know, that's encapsulated. Um, and then obviously, Batteries Not Included, which <laughs> played a huge part in my childhood. Um, so those those are definitely some of my faves. Fantastic. And Josh, do you want to throw out the customary question? <laughs> well, I, I, I fear that I know the answer already, but uh, it's, it's, it's my uh, predilection to ask guests if, if they cry when watching E.T. Uh, so I extend the question to you, Steph. Do you cry when you watch E.T.? No, I do not cry when I watch E.T. Um, it actually takes quite a bit to get me to cry in a movie. I'm, I'm kind of yeah. a... I'm kind of an ice queen when it comes to that, but <laughs> the one film... The one film that gets me every single time is yeah. Cast Castaway, like Wilson. Oh. Wilson. I, <laughs> I thought you were going to say Casper for a second, and I was going yeah. to completely agree with you because Casper makes me cry a lot as well at the end. But we'll get to that in about a year's time. <laughs> it's some. Um, it's something about those sort of you know non-living objects that yeah, yeah. That just 
yeah, it gets me. It gets me in the feels. So um, I'm actually, I'm actually feeling emotional talking about Wilson right now. So. Just picturing his, his smiling red I just face. Can't. Just like, just... <laughs> it's getting through. It's getting through. <sighs> yeah, shake it off. Shake oh. it off. <laughs> but of course, we we have got you in to talk about batteries, or I should say, asterisks. Batteries not included. Important. <laughs> Important. The uh, 1987 sci-fi drama directed by Matthew Robbins um, and, of course, produced by Amblin Entertainment. Uh, before we kick, up, kick off with the discussion proper, I'll hand it over to Joshua Glenn, synopsis man, to <laughs> lead us into the world of batteries not included. Thanks, man. <laughs> Five ordinary people needed a miracle. Then, one night, Faye Riley left the window open, as the tagline <laughs> on the poster goes. An apartment building in the East Village is the last stronghold against insidious property developer Lacey, who is levelling an entire neighbourhood to make way for his modern, skyscraper-filled complex. Leading the charge against accepting the uh, the buyout and leaving their home behind are Frank and Faye Riley, played by uh, Hume Cronyan and Jessica Tandia, respectively, who own the diner on the ground floor of the building. Also refusing to move are wanky artist Mason, played by (laughs) Dennis Busicaris, Pregnant Marissa, played by Elizabeth Pena, and former boxer Harry, played by Frank McRae. To try and encourage these stubborn tenants to move, Lacey sends a gang of thugs, led by Carlos, played by Michael Carmine, to try and intimidate him. They break doors, intimidate, uh, threaten physical violence, and destroy the Riley's diner. Shaken by the assault, saddened by two of his closest neighbours giving in and moving out, and concerned about Faye's seemingly worsening dementia, Frank contemplates throwing in the towel. That night, however, two living spaceship things enter the Riley's apartment in search of a plug socket to recharge their batteries and begin to fix things throughout the building. A smashed photo frame here and a broken door there. They catch the attention of Faye, who follows them up to the shed on the roof of the building, where they seem to have taken up temporary residence. They immediately establish some sort of connection, and it looks like her condition is starting to improve. The next morning, Frank awakens to discover that the diner has been fully repaired, and follows his wife to the roof, where he and the remaining neighbours discover what they dub the Fix-Its. Baffled and angered by the now spotless diner, Carlos attempts to intimidate the tenants further, but is scared away by the Fix-Its, who lure him to the roof and electrocute him in the shed. Things are looking up. Business in the diner is booming, the neighbours are bonding, there's an apparently burgeoning romance between Mason and Marissa, and the Fix-Its have somehow given birth to a bunch of cutesy baby spaceship things. (laughs) Uh, But with Lacey frustrated by the lack of progress in coercing the tenants, and Carlos humiliated by the lack of belief in his magical spaceship's excuse, tempers are rising and the Riley's temporary peace looks threatened. Will the Fix-Its be able to fix this, or will they be undone by the lack of battery inclusion? Nice. (laughs) Oh yeah. <laughs> I got a, there. I got a little bit too into this synopsis, and I was I wrote a much more detailed beat by beat thing. <laughs> I had to really scale it back. <laughs> this movie will do that to you. You know, you get so into it. You just, yeah, every every detail. A lot of left field turns. <laughs> when I got to the bit where it says that night two living spaceships come through the window, it's that sun. So just sun By the way, there's aliens. Yeah. Get to the fireworks factory. Oh, boy. Uh, you said at the top there, Steph, that this is one that was uh, quite uh, prominent in your childhood. So, is it? Uh, can you remember like the first time watching it? 
I mean, I can't remember the first time. I, I remember I was very, very little. So I'd probably say about four or five, which is likely a bit young for the film. But um, like I said before, we had all of these sort of, you know, these blank VHS tapes that had been, you know, had movies recorded on them. And this was this was one of those kind of a dusty one where my mom had written in pen, like batteries not included, you know, including <laughs> including the asterisk because that's very important. Hey, hey. and she'd taken the tab out of the VHS as well, so <laughs> exactly. So, and I remember it just. Well, I guess I really remember it when I was sick. It was kind. Of, it was a sick day movie, mm. and I was quite a sickly kid, and so I'd be at home quite a bit. And this was a movie that I just always put on or that my mom would always put on because it's just it's like a giant hug to me it's so wholesome and it's so sweet and endearing um and I just remember curling up on our big armchair in our house in Houston back in day and just feeling just completely (laughs) dazzled and mesmerized by these little fixits these little alien robots and their antics um, so those those are kind of the the main memories, and I haven't actually seen the movie again in so long. Like, so I rewatched it obviously for this, but it had been probably over a decade, if not more, that I I just hadn't seen it, and I was struck by how the things that I remembered and the things that I didn't remember, and I think I kind of yeah. blocked out a lot of the more sort of not they're not gruesome details but the sort of violent ish things that yeah, happen it's quite a dark underbelly really the, <laughs> the world of yeah. factories not included there definitely is and i mean i, I really remember the, the fire scene the fire scene shook yeah. me as a little kid and i feel like it still shook me when i rewatch it um <laughs> but yeah it's it's funny how some of those kind of more violent ish details just absolutely i had forgotten them and then um <laughs> yeah and also some of the scenes like I guess when the fixits are humping in the shed, like that clearly went over my head. <laughs> that is something I did not pick up on, obviously as a little kid. And then when I rewatched it recently, I was like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> They're just looking for a place to bang. <laughs> I was like, oh damn. Okay. And then meanwhile, everybody's like watching him do it. And I was like, give him some yeah. So, um, so those. So it was it was fun. It was fun to rewatch it for this, um, and lots of lots mm. of nice memories flooding back. Yeah, I've just, I've just got this <laughs> little image of like just you as a little girl leaving the window open just in case a fix it would come down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I remember I remember one Christmas because I was so obsessed with this movie. I loved it so much, and I remember for Christmas I did ask my mom. I was like oh, I want some of the batteries not included little robots for Christmas. And I think she panicked a bit because obviously, like, I don't think she knew, yeah. you know, that she couldn't buy them or whatever. So I think that Christmas... It's not 1987 I... anymore. No, it's not. But I think she got me, like, some other, like, weird robot toy. And she's like, here, this is an evolved version of them. And then I was like, oh, wow. Well cool. <laughs> like, yeah, she was, she was good like that. So, um, Yeah. <laughs> How about yourself, young Glenn? Uh, is this an Amblin movie you'd seen before? Yeah, largely the same as Steph, to be honest. It was, I don't know if, I think we may have sporadically recorded bits of it on VHSs over the years, but it was always one that seemed to be on, on a semi-regular rotation on like a Sunday afternoon and would always watch it. Whenever we would change the channel and find it, we'd always watch it from that point onwards. And um, much the same as you, I 
specific bits stick in my head. So the, the overall sort of arc of the story had completely gone. But I remember the image, the final image of their house in between these two huge skyscrapers. And I remembered the bit when Carlos uh, hacks away at the, the daddy spaceship. Yeah, I remember yeah. that bit really well. Yeah. And I think the reason why is because I must have watched it around the time Flubber came out. And there's a very similar beat in Flubber when a, thug, there is. Yeah. a hoodlum destroys his little yellow fix-it friend thing. And, uh, <laughs> so it was a, a big year for, for little flying saucers getting whacked. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I kind of almost forgot this film existed until looking at the filmography for Amblin. I thought, oh my god, I remember that film. Yeah, the film with the, the, the guy whacking the flying saucer thing. So I, I hadn't seen it. I think, we'll go, I think we're going back to the 90s for sure since I've seen it last. So watching it yeah. again was a very strange, almost out-of-body experience. It, mm. it took me right back to the, the feeling of being like a, a, a <laughs> an eight-year-old or whatever, you know, like a seven-year-old watching this movie. It was, it, was, it was very, very strange. It was very comforting in that respect. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It is yeah. That, it's just that feeling of comfort because it's so yeah. wholesome and it's just, it's just a nice film for all of its kind of weird dark undertones it is mm-hmm. just it is just a nice film yeah yeah what about you yeah, andy definitely. uh it's a bit of a broken record as a story for <laughs> <laughs> for when i watched a lot of these ones particularly from the 80s but it was one that i watched on bbc2 on a sunday afternoon at like two o'clock <laughs> just before tea time <laughs> uh, you got like that and again i've had i have a similar sort of i'm pretty sure i'd only seen it the once as a kid all the mm. way through so that I would say that rewatching it for this is only the second time that I've properly sat down and watched it. But I like it's the same sort of images that have stuck mm. in my head around it, particularly around that final act where we've said, uh, "Papa, <laughs> Papa, fix it, getting an axe to the head." <laughs> so traumatizing. And, uh, yeah, and Jessica Tandy being trapped in a flaming apartment building. I mean, these are images yeah, that will stay yeah. with you. Yeah, and and of course a little a little robot flipping cheeseburgers is always oh. going to sear in a eight year old's brain. <laughs> the cutest, the absolute cutest. That's definitely a scene that's always stuck with me. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, but before we get into our uh, discussion proper, I'll, I'll go through some production notes. Feel free to hop in on uh, if you feel I, I leave an avenue unchecked. But um, the kind of point of origin for batteries not included was uh as a episode originally for the amblin produced amazing stories tv show that we've talked about a couple of times mm-hmm. but in case uh people aren't too too familiar it was a anthology tv series produced in uh 85 to 1987 that kind of basically spielberg's uh twilight zone for lack of a better <laughs> comparison mm-hmm. Uh, something I've never seen an episode of, but feel like I probably should because it's come up a lot in this. <laughs> lot of, yeah, a lot of our filmmakers have done episodes as well. Mm. Is it a show, show you're familiar? So I actually, I watched one episode before doing this podcast because I was like, because obviously I was reading up on this and I was like, oh yeah, keep on mentioning amazing stories. So I'd never seen an episode before, but I decided to dive in. I had like a half hour to spare. So I thought, let's check this out um really not quite my tempo <laughs> I have to, the episode that i watched it was called miscalculation or miscalculations um starring john crier a very like a young obviously okay. john crier and it was just it, yeah it was weird i can see now why it's compared to the twilight zone because it's that same kind of vibe 
Um, but mm-hmm. this one episode, man, it was just, yeah, it was weird as shit. It, it was, <laughs> just some very odd, it was very thematically weird. It was like John Cryer trying to come up with this sort of magic solution that he mm-hmm. pours on things and then they become, they come to life. So he accidentally spills it on a magazine cover that has a dog on it and then the dog appears but he's like his whole mo is trying to chase women and trying to date women so he gets like this playboy type magazine and he's like shit i'm gonna create like this dream he's woman. gonna weird science this shit <laughs> exactly so then he has all this kind of experimenting pouring this weird juice on like playboy like different pages and then these different I got of- <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> correct correct so then through experimentation like every time this juice is spilled on (laughs) on the pages like a different sort of basically kind of fucked up version of a woman comes to life so one of them has like half a face one of them has only like her torso and then it's just this sort of this succession of weird experiences with these these fake playboy ladies the whole thing just left me um yeah sort of just in awe really um and and scratching my head so yes i can say i have watched one episode (laughs) there's one that i've heard about as zemeckis because Zemeckis did, I think, about three. And there's one where I think he exhumes uh, Humphrey Bogart and brings him back via, um, uh, was it uh, Laurence Olivier in Sky Captain that they bring back? Oh, right, yes. <laughs> Remember that movie? <laughs> A very rudimentary versions of that technology. And they bring Humphrey Bogart back. Yeah. That's so. cool. That sounds better. Strange, strange sounding series. Very weird. But I do like the sound of the Humphrey Bogart one better. <laughs> Yeah. It's all, this is all making me want to want to watch it more, I think. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was where this story started. A slightly more good-natured uh, example of an episode, I imagine. But it was one that Spielberg liked the idea of so much that he wanted wanted it to get the feature-length feature length treatment. Uh, Mick Garris was the writer who came up with it initially as a concept for the TV show. Um, and then the writing team behind fellow robot-centric uh, movies, Short Circuit, Short Circuit, S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock came on board to have a go at the first draft of the screenplay. Um, and they are a writing duo who would go on to have greater success in the future with uh, the Tremors franchise and also Wild Wild West. <laughs> eh, I didn't even bring it up this time. I, d- I did, I did d- not even Don't even, even have to try. Time. Don't oh. even have to try. Andy, the way you... it, it's so intrinsically linked to this movie, we have to do a bonus episode. <laughs> when it gets to 99, we have to do a bonus episode. I'm really hoping you guys do because I'm a huge fan of Wild Wild West. Like, I'm just oh! putting it out there. <laughs> hey, hands up. Like, hands down, it is a great piece of fun. So, haters come at me. All right, but... you're in. You're in. Making oh, you heard it here, folks. Steph will come back when we do when we get to 1999 and we'll do Watch. a bonus set on Wild Wild West. <laughs> Wiki Can't wait. Uh... <laughs> And from from their draft, uh, Spielberg hired uh, Matthew Robbins to come on to direct. Uh, Robbins had previously had a working relationship with Spielberg, um, writing uh, his debut big cinematic uh, feature, The Sugarland Express, in 1974, as well as doing uncredited rewrites on uh, the likes of Jaws, Close Encounters, 
and THX 1138. So Robbins was very much someone kind of in this inner circle of the moody brats. And uh, he, he himself as a director had a few credits ahead of Batteries Not Included, including the Mark Hamill and Annie Potts comedy Corvette Summer in 1978. Um the very underrated fantasy movie, Dragon Slayer in 81. <laughs> Don't know if you've ever seen Dragon Slayer, but it has one of the best dragons <laughs> in it, cinema even, history. Like, and I like the, the dragons in movies. <laughs> from the title down, it sounds like exactly the kind of film that you defend. <laughs> I mean, I have not seen it, but I cannot wait to watch it and to love it and, yeah, yeah. to be obsessed with it, That's basically. Great. great movie, Dragon. <laughs> Uh, and he, it also, uh, a couple of years before, I directed a drama called The Legend of Billie Jean in 1985, along with a few episodes of Amazing Stories himself. And uh, he, he's he gone on to have like quite a fascinating career because like, most of his later uh, career work has been around writing films for Guillermo del Toro. He wrote um, Mimic and Crimson Peak with del Toro. And he also writes a number of Bollywood pictures, which uh, I found quite... <laughs> It's such an interesting trajectory to go from like 70s American new wave cinema <laughs> to contributing to Bollywood cinema. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun, fun pipeline, isn't it? That? Yeah. <laughs> Once hired to batteries, Robbins brought on a young writer by the name of Brad Bird to rewrite the script alongside him. Brad Bird, of course, would go on to make The Iron Giant and The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. Um, but at this point, he was uh, quite quite early on in his career. He'd been working at Disney as an animator and had also created an animated episode of Amazing Stories called Family Dog. Family Dog, and it, yeah. And it was not long after Batteries that Bird would go on to have quite a significant hand in the development of The Simpsons before then coming up, coming to his own filmmaking success. So that uh, I'm sure... I'm sure quite a few listeners are very familiar with Brad Bird and this is one of his earliest things <laughs> and the, the film was shot in New York in the August of 1987 again amazing to me that these films have such, always seem to have really tight turnarounds in the 80s because mm-hmm. it's shot in 87 and it's out by that December um, and they found a building building site for the filming location that was located on New York's Lower East Side um, <laughs> Josh brought this bit of production uh, tidbit to my attention um, that I found quite funny. Uh, the production designer by the name of Ted Hayworth had designed a three-sided, four-story tenement facade to go to go across this building that they'd located in the Lower East Side. Um, and one day, they had put out all the rubble for the to be set dressing, as it as it were for this disused and kind of run-down apartment building. And so realistic was this rubble that the sanitation department came by and took away the prop garbage. <laughs> oh, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> we <need new> rubble. <laughs> and we're, we're talking 50 to 60 truckloads. <laughs> 50 to 60 truckloads. It's a lot of fake rubble they brought in and then had taken away again. <laughs> Well, I mean, I I read another thing somewhere that apparently the the whole set was so realistic and so well put together that apparently, because mm-hmm. obviously there's the cafe at the bottom of, you know, on the ground floor of this tenement. 
And apparently locals and passers-by actually thought that it was a real yeah. cafe. So they kept, they kept on stopping by to try to order coffee or to order sandwiches or whatever to get breakfast, lunch. Um, and then so realistic, apparently it, it was so realistic that this sort of, I, I think it was like a plumbing company, like a plumbing mm-hmm. service thing came to the, the set. Yeah. Came to the set and they were demanding to see permits for the cafe because <laughs> they were like, oh, we can't find this in, in the New York sort of hall of <laughs> records of construction. And they were like, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's a film set. It's a film set. It's a movie. Like, it's a movie. <laughs> but so apparently the set was causing quite the, uh, quite the chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm just uh, I'm just imagining just trying to <laughs> catching glimpse of the <laughs> robots in a cafe making making your food and just going yeah th- this seems legit <laughs> <laughs> this seems right this seems right this is where I'm getting my coffee this morning <laughs> and um, as Josh said in his synopsis the film is led by uh, Hume Cronin and Jessica T- Tandy who were a real life married couple and also like classic Hollywood stars who. Uh, made a, a lot of films together. I think even in the opening montage, all all the pictures of them together are genuine photos from their past, which is just an adorable touch. <laughs> <laughs> and this film is kind of sandwiched in between their quite similar work in um, Ron Howard's Cocoon in '85, um, and that film sequel in '87. Um, have you guys ever seen seen the Cocoon movies? No, I have. no. <laughs> I have. I've seen Cocoon. This was, again, this was ages ago. I must have been a young teen or something. But um, again, I keep bringing up my mom because she was she was very uh, crucial in my film upbringing, but she loved Jessica Tandy. And so anything that had the Tandy in it, we watched. Um, So yeah, Cocoon. Cocoon was one that I saw. I can't say that it's left a particular impression on me. but you know, I'm here. I'm here for the old people movies. <laughs> I'm always here for that. So, um, so yeah, fond, fondish memories, if not sort of per- permanent <laughs> memories. It's another one too that strikes me as weird that it isn't a Amblin film. It yeah, it's got that, that kind of vibe, definitely. And uh, they both, they, it's quite a different relationship. But I think it, it is another kind of example of how. How, how genuinely lovely they are as a mm. screen couple because I think sometimes you can find with actors who are in real life relationships when that is put to film it doesn't always actually come across in on screen chemistry but in the case of uh, Tandy and Cronin it really does yeah. <laughs> and uh, I have no doubt that Amblin had uh, Cocoon on the mind when they cast these guys to pretty much lead this movie as Cocoon was quite a quite a hit back in 85 um and batteries itself was releasing the christmas season of 87 opening at number four behind eddie murphy's raw free men and a baby and throw mama from the train i mean that's a good weekend at the movies <laughs> that is a great weekend sign me up to that weekend i'm there <laughs> and the film itself went on to gross just over 65 million worldwide against a budget of 25 million so while profitable it was not quite a success akin to Cocoon, which made 20 million more and cost 10 million less. So I imagine they were hoping for similar numbers, but didn't quite get there. And and I, I don't know if it's so much of that kind of the fact that it wasn't such a big hit that it's one that I feel like, like you were saying, when you kind of go through the list of Amblin movies, it's one that 
kind of surprises you when it is there. So I yeah. wonder if that that tends to happen with the ones that aren't such big hits upon release that they end up in this kind of little pocket of curiosity, videotape yeah. curiosity yeah, or like yeah. rainy afternoon video mm. curiosity. And uh, I, I just wonder how it, having that nostalgic kind of attachment to it and then coming back into it and for for this and l- looking back on, on these titles of childhood can sometimes be quite quite strange and sometimes it can either be like quite an exuberant thing to do or it can sometimes be a bit of a oh no sort of moment so, so, so i'm wondering where you kind of guy guy guys landed on that in terms of the kind of like returning to it i mean i'm one of those people who i defend movies till i die basically mm-hmm. so even if so let's say it was a childhood favorite if i come back to it as an older person I will probably still love that movie just because mm-hmm. yeah. of the memories attached to it, of the feelings attached to it, because you're, you know, it's more than just what's on the screen for me. You know, yeah. when, when we talk about some of these older movies or these childhood ones, it's more than just, Oh, I'm rewatching this plot play out. It's all of the sort of memories that come with the watching of it and that feeling and that sense of, like with this one of comfort and remembering eating my little bowl of Cheetos when I was watching it and just, you know, it's a whole sensory experience. So rewatching it for me, even though I was slightly, I guess maybe thrown by some of the scenes or, you know, like I said, I forgot some of the scenes or didn't quite remember things happening in that order. It Mm -hmm. was still one that I would walk away from and I'd be like, yes, I love this movie. This is great. I don't have any, you know, harsh or embarrassing <laughs> feelings, like, you know, some, yeah. I mean, I, some of these movies that you watch, you know, back when you were a kid that aren't necessarily the ones that you love or that you rewatch and rewatch and rewatch. Sometimes then you come back to them and you're like, what the hell was I thinking? This is utter crap. But for ones that were such staples, like Batteries Not Included was mm-hmm. for me, there is no way that I could rewatch it as an adult personally and be like, oh, <laughs> actually, this is trash. Like... <laughs> Yeah. Like, that's, like that that doesn't happen for me mm-hmm. um <clears throat> so <laughs> unfortunately to counter uh, i i had, I had... <laughs> no i i i do i i love that as a stance and I, I generally do tend to err on that side but i had a very very weird parallel viewing of this one where on, on the one side it took me right back to sort of the sense memory i had when i first watched it so i could like i was sitting in my old old house on a rainy sunday afternoon with like mum, dad and sister watching this movie at certain points and that was very nice and very comforting and I very much enjoyed that but then it's weird I'm I'm someone who cries so easily at films it takes very little to set the waterworks off for me but then there are some films where when the machinations are so naked I it really gets my back up and this is one such film for me this is one film where I could see exactly where it was trying to pull at those heartstrings and the sort of the redemptive arcs it was setting up and the things that it was trying to get me to feel and I do kind of I bristle slightly at that so I on the one hand I had this really nice nostalgic bath 
And on the other hand, I had this real kind of, you're not going to make me cry, movie. I don't know who you think you <laughs> So it was a, a weird... I, I, I did... I suppose that the net movement was that I regressed to a childlike state, but it was sort of <laughs> blithe stubbornness more than anything else. <laughs> so, but I do think, from what you're saying, I th- this sounds like one that was much more entrenched in your childhood than it was mine. I think it was, it was one that was on rotation quite a bit for me. But I think in, in, in a slightly more low calorie kind of way because it left such so little of an imprint in my later life, unlike say E.T. or Back to the Future, that watching it again, I could sort of see shadows of memories from when I watched it, but the overall thing seemed quite uh, distant to me. It was it was it was a weird experience. It was a very very strange experience. Well, I was um, it was interesting for me as well because I was watching it with someone when I rewatched it. I was watching it with someone who had never seen it before, and it was kind of one of those times where you know when you're about to share a childhood something <laughs> yeah. with yeah. with someone, and you're like, oh, get ready, it's really good, it's really good. Like, oh, they're so cute. Oh, the little fixits, and oh, you're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. And then you kind of like watch them a bit while you're watching mm-hmm. the movie to see if they're responding the right way. And I didn't quite get the response that I needed (laughs) from that other person. Um, But it is because obviously, you know, they were watching it from, you know, as an adult for the first time. And I suppose I can't, you know, I'm not completely um, blindfolded to the fact that maybe if you do watch it as an adult in the year 2021, some of those instances some of those scenes are going to be a little bit cheesier i can see what you mean josh about like you know Mm -hmm. you can you can identify when they're trying to really tug at those emotional you know at at the heartstrings and things yeah um so i get that and i get when you're watching it for the first time nowadays maybe it doesn't have quite the the same impact as when you're four and it's you know the early 90s and you're like whoa this is the greatest thing but um (laughs) so i can appreciate that but no this is definitely one that i yeah, I, still, yeah. I still have that that feeling for it's nice when you yeah. can maintain that i think you, you do you uh, as movie fans you really want to sort of cherish and savor that feeling and it, and it does suck when that isn't the case and it's it's you know i was really really hoping to uh to fall in love with this one but uh what are you giggling at andrew <laughs> i just you saying that it just it just instantly threw me back to when <laughs> oh no no let's not go here this is still a painful memory <laughs> went round to Josh's one night, I think I think Reese was with us as well. Steph, he was, he yeah. Put Crocodile Dundee on, and we were just like, "Oh man!" <laughs> he's, he's actually spoken about this. He's been like, "Oh yeah, we watched Crocodile Dundee. That did not hold up." We should, that yeah, not held up. <laughs> this is future guest Reese, who I think we've mentioned Reese on the podcast before. I forget in what capacity, but he has. He I has, talk about uh, him a lot in my yeah. daily life. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Crocodile Dundee was a bit, as I mentioned on a previous episode, uh, was a big one in my childhood. In Inexplicably, it's not really a child-friendly film, Crocodile Dundee. I don't know why it captured my attention. But that is one that's had a lingering effect. So um, coming back to that and watching it, it was very much like what you said, Steph. You're watching your friends from the corner of your eye, hoping that they will respond like you are. With, like, every homophobic and, and racist and sexist joke that was coming out of that Australian's mouth. Yeah. It was um, chipping away at my, my spirit a little bit. I feel for you. <laughs> Uh, what was your takeaway, Andy, watching this film this time? Well, I think listening to you two there, I, I think I land somewhere in the middle because it wasn't one that was on super rotation, like I said, in 
my household, but one that had these kind of fuzzy nostalgia goggle kind of images in my head of what it was. And watching it again, um, I personally didn't mind the fact that I was being led down certain paths that were quite easy to (laughs) see because I was quite, I I was particularly enamored with uh, uh, Frank and Faye. And I found that, I I found that whole relationship really quite affecting and it was more also just um <laughs> i i ended up i completely had no idea of how frankly bizarre that a lot of the, the plotting is in this movie because <laughs> uh, we've talked a bit about the <laughs> the this kind of darkness that does exist in this film and that darkness does really character character eh, character eh. <laughs> characterize <laughs> the opening Characterized, <laughs> really characterizes the opening, and, <laughs> and because you do you you're introduced into this film with this lovely montage of kind of New York mm. in its heyday of these lovely photos of Faye and Frank when they were younger with their friends and the business was booming and there was a community in this building and it's set to James Horner's really fun peppy kind of big big time swing score. And then those pictures slowly fade into what is now what has become of the area where this one last apartment block that uh, Faye and Frank and the other and inhab- the other characters of the film are living in. They they're like literally only a handful of people who have stayed. It's the only building there, and there there was just like something like like that. Even just that kind of progression into it, where it, I found it all quite yes, it's all tugging at particular sense of nostalgia and that kind of lost lost home and what have you in quite Mm -hmm. obvious ways but in ways i found quite quite affecting from the off and then piling it up with this again these quite dark elements of uh your kind of classic 80s suit um villain coming in and building uh massive complexes uh for the sake of for the sake of capitalism and (laughs) and then also seeing that other members in neighboring neighborhoods are being um manipulated almost uh with carlos and the and the not not boys as i'm pretty sure they call themselves <laughs> yeah. at one yeah, point they do. <laughs> um how they're being used as like the like really quite um scary intimidators for all these people living in this apartment and going to the point where you feel that the violence is at really at a point where it's all erupting to a point where it's all getting genuinely really quite dangerous for this lovely old couple that's living mm. there. This uh, this sweet pregnant woman who lives by herself on in an apartment on a few a few floors up, and it's in that at that point where everything's at their kind of most dire straits that um, the aliens happen to pop through pop through the window, and that 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 was the first turn in the film. I was like, is that okay? This is going to get. This is gonna get quite goofy now, because <laughs> I I don't know if I had it in my head that there was a bit more kind of playful kind of moments where they were discovering that things were being fixed and they didn't know what was happening quite yet. But it really it did really throw me when it is literally just he's like, oh god, we need a miracle, and then it cuts to the next scene and they're coming through the window, and I was just like, oh okay, See, here we go. I was, I was Respect that timing. I think that timing is perfectly balanced because you have that such a heartfelt scene where you yeah. know he's yeah. like, oh, you know, 
we need a miracle. And then, yeah, they go to sleep thinking like next day we're going to be thrown out of our home. And then, Mm -hmm. yeah, then all of a sudden the aliens pop out. And I think it's highly effective. And I was not mad at this timing, especially (laughs) especially because if you think about it, the aliens, the robot alien fix it don't really come in to play until sort of 20 minutes into into the film. And what I think is great about that is that you, even if it is just 20 minutes, you already get a sense of all of the characters and part of their story. And you have Mason, the the artist, and you have the single pregnant mom, and you, you get these flashes of their stories and their hardships. And, you know, it seems, I guess maybe it seems strange to say, oh, you get such a full picture of them in, in 20 minutes. But I, I really like that they kind of play on this whole story and these different storylines and make you feel for them. At least I feel for them. Mm-hmm. Make you feel yeah. for them. And then, yeah, just poof, you got you have these aliens and then antics <laughs> arrive. So I, I first, I'm not <laughs> mad at it. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons that I struggle with the synopsis so much is because there, there are so many, there are like four, four or five independent threads introduced for the first 20 minutes that kind of intermingle together before this sharp turn into little sort of goofy sci-fi territory happens. And, and it's just sort of trying to keep a hold of everything that's going on um, was quite surprisingly challenging. But no, I, <laughs> I have to say, like, I, I do quite admire the brazenness of cutting from, oh, we need a miracle, to the open window and these two little sources just being there straight away. Especially when there was the scene before he says that, when he's feeding her her medicine and when sort of he's... he's getting ready for bed and taking it to bed. There's some really nice little grace notes, like when she starts singing a song and he joins in and his, his voice starts to yeah. quiver. Yeah. And then there's a bit when she kisses him and there's a look on his face and you can just see so much history in the look on his face. And I think a lot of that does come from the fact that they've had a you know 50-year marriage by that point. But there's something so lived in about those performances that do give those moments a lot of heft. So I will say that, yeah, by that point, I wasn't mad at the film either. I did. I was. I was kind of. I. I do appreciate the kind of work that it's doing on that level, you know, and especially those two performers. Definitely, and you're right. That first twenty minutes does uh, commit quite well to finding like quite economical ways to introduce everybody and kind of give them their own reason to believe that the fixits have come to, for them and to help them in their particular uh, problems that both on the kind of the bigger scale of being forced out of this building, but also their individual uh, struggles that they, they all have. And, and I think Frank and Faye's the anchor for, for, for me anyway, like the real, the real reason why the, like a lot of the emotion of it resonates. Is that the same for you guys or the kind of other characters in there as well that do it for you? Um, I think it's definitely, um, I think it's definitely Frank and Faye. They are the anchors. Um, but like I was saying, you know, with the 20 minutes when you do get a snapshot, I think some characters do come across more. Like it's hard. It's hard for me to really be like, oh, poor Mason, the the artist, the, the <laughs> we, winky we, artist. We can talk about that prick in a second. <laughs> exactly. So it's hard for me to be like, oh, shucks, you know, the fixes came for Mason. Um, but but like Elizabeth Pena, uh, Elizabeth Pena's character, Marissa, yeah. she like, you know, we I felt for her with even again in that little glimpse into her life or, you know, because she says, oh, I'm waiting for my boyfriend to come back. He's a musician. And, 
you know, you're kind of left wondering like, oh, is he really coming back or is he not? And it's mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. different snapshots. And then Harry, obviously the ex-boxer who just, he tugs on my heartstrings with his jar of tiles and things. So, but for all of their stories and even, you know, I think it's Marissa who says, oh, you know, the fix-its came for me. And then someone else says, oh, they came for me. So they clearly all think that mm-hmm. the fix-its came for them. And I liked that little um, insert in in the movie where it makes it seem like they each think that they've come for them. But um, no, for me, Frank and Fay are, are definitely the the heavy lifters here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did, uh, Andy and I briefly touched upon this uh, before we started recording, but the, the character that I expected certain things from that didn't quite ever, um, you know, get capitalized on was Carlos, who begins as a sort of quite a crude stereotype, I think, of, of a Latino, Latino character. And then there is a heavily telegraphed redemptive arc with regards to his ultimate saving of uh, a Faye in the house. And then the moment that you think is going to be this big kind of come into my arms, son, forgiveness, reconciliation moment. You don't really you don't really get that with him, do you? Because there's a scene in the hospital at the end where he brings Faye flowers, which I guess shows that he's reformed. Um, but then she just remembers again that her son has died and he kind of gets wafted away and he throws the flowers in the bin. And that's kind of the end of him. And I... You know, as much as I slightly resented just how telegraphed his whole arc was, I was ready to get, well, you know, swept up in his big redemptive moment, which weirdly, weirdly never quite came. It almost felt like there was a final scene for his character that was that was missing from the film. You know, I don't know. I don't know if you guys felt a similar way. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I would have liked to have seen a bit more. I do quite like the slightly more realistic. Usually, you know, Mm -hmm. I kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sway between wanting realism and then wanting mm-hmm. sort of the more fantastical um, plot points. But I did I did appreciate the realism of him coming to the hospital and bringing the flowers. And then, you know, it's, it, again, it tugs on your emotional heartstrings when uh, Frank tries to pretend like he's Bobby because obviously mm-hmm. Faye's been calling him Bobby this whole time um, and has been mistaking him for her dead son. Um, so, you know, they tried to, to rally around her and try to make it seem like he's Bobby and he's, he's trying clearly. And then obviously she rejects it because she's upset. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously he throws the flowers out and storms out. So I, I quite like the realism of that and that they didn't try yeah. to bring it yeah. together. But the part that I really found interesting about his character, and I kind of would have liked to have seen more, but obviously there wasn't time or space in the film was, I find the scene where he goes to the big landlord's yeah. office mm. and, you know, it's kind of essentially because he's been tasked with throwing the people out of this tenement. And then he he obviously fails because of the fix-its getting in the way. So then he goes to the big office building where this landlord, you know, works. And he's all dressed up in his red suit. And, you know, mm, he's yeah. looking dapper and he's clearly a bit nervous because this means so much to him because we see that he is so desperate to to Mm. be more or to to be a part of this kind of corporate world and be accepted there and clearly he's standing out you know with his red suit and uh, he's not going to be accepted but i thought that storyline of him trying to work his way out and up that that was really interesting uh, an interesting Mm. insight into that character that I potentially would have um, yeah. would have liked to, to see more of, but again, we we don't get that. Because <laughs> there is a nice moment in the in the diner when uh, he comes in there and he's shouting at all the construction workers. Then he sits down. Uh, uh, Faye makes him sit down, brings him soup, 
and they start talking and obviously she thinks it's Bobby at that point. But he does start to open up a little bit and he talks about his yeah. his plans for upwards mobility and mm. and you do you do sort of get you do I, I don't know, I think I think I did feel for that character a bit. I, talking about it now I realise that I do care for Carlos and I do want I, Carlos yeah, to be okay. I definitely did. <laughs> and um <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was a nice, it was a really nice scene. I think you're right, Steph. The scene that you're talking about and, and the scene in the diner that really nice sort of glimpses behind this, you know, this this sort of stereotype, this sort of archetypal mm. character. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Nice, nice little shades of, of something close to nuance in a film that's not really wanting the sort of largely wanting for nuance elsewhere. Definitely, it's a, it's a lot more thoughtful than I think, particularly in this period of filmmaking that others would kind of exhibit that kind of character they could have kept like you can think of earlier hollywood films that would have kept him more as just that hired hired goon to act as a kind of other form of uh aggression beyond the kind of big bad in lacy but you do you are offered more a more thoughtful look into both his own home life because there is that scene where him and his mates are I, I think they're hanging out in a building that's just far away where they can they can see they can see across still with binoculars to the apartment building but you see that they're also in re- like really dire conditions and that he is developed as a character like you say Steph is just finding wanting to find a way out and try trying to find that quickly because he knows that it, it's he might end up be, being stuck in this place for forever if he doesn't act and do something clearly quite radical but for him it's a it's a means to an end and to, at a point where there's not a lot of other options on on the table and I, I also particularly really feel for him where he turns up in that red suit and then all the white businessmen in mm-hmm. their gray suits all come out and just kind of scoff at the at, at his uh, at his clothing choices and at his just general his general presence there and and I do think that is a lot more thoughtful than I think a lot of films from this time would have, would have done with that character. Yeah, he's not just, he's not, he's not, he is the villain in the film, but he's not really the villain. And I like the different shades that we get of him and that kind of development, but it's of character, but it's not a strictly, like, we, like we're saying, it's not, oh, he's bad and then he's good and he's embraced into the family or it's yeah, not, yeah. oh, he's bad and then he gets success you know it's this it's these different more realistic shades of someone yeah who's just wanting a better life who is making Mm -hmm. these choices because they have to and has these secret or you know not so secret but these these harbored dreams of 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 you know doing something else and gets caught up in in situations so i really like that the villain isn't just straight villain and he's not Mm. just straight good bad it's it's definitely nuanced He's a guy that you'll. I found myself rooting for him every 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 sort of turn when he had a choice to make. I was like, please, just just go for dinner. Just go to their house for dinner. Do not <laughs> don't don't burn. Don't break the gas mains. Do not blow the building up. Just go for dinner with fate. It's going to be lovely. Have a nice time. But no, he did make too many bad choices along the way. Bless him. But it, it, yeah, it's it's weird that it's a bad guy that you are rooting for to sort of, to do good and to to achieve his goals. I think it's quite interesting that, like you say, it keeps that redemption arc, as it were. If anything, kind of to the antithesis of your point of this film telegraphing mm. everything, it's actually quite a bold 
move for it to keep it messy and to have like have this moment where all these characters lives are being literally restored and brought back to yeah. life by the fix it but then also kind of keeping this postscript of not everyone in this neighborhood or not every character around is going to yeah. get this happy ending it's it's like a quite a localized point of people being helped out but there's still people on the fringes who are not going to yeah uh, reap the benefits or like actually have their life improved by this extraordinary situation so if anything it adds it adds more, more gray to the... <laughs> I, I suppose the middle ground would be it sort of telegraphed this arc that it doesn't have any intention of filling which is quite bold for a film like this so oh you, you're gonna talk me around by the end you're gonna talk me around i think by the end yeah. of this yeah. <laughs> good <laughs> Um, let's talk about a character that I don't think any of us are going to come around on, that that bloody beardy <laughs> twat Mason. God, Mason. You've called him a wanker and a twat, so I'm going to check it up. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know where to begin with Mason. I mean, there's the, the bit that, made, that really turned me against Mason is when he goes to... He goes around to... Um, uh, Marissa's? Marissa's apartment, yeah, and he he brings her some groceries round, and he immediately opens a carton of milk, and he drinks it straight from the carton. <laughs> doesn't pour it into a glass. Then when he takes it away, he's got little droplets of milk <laughs> in his beard, and it's disgusting. I thought, what a pig! What an absolute pig! <laughs> and that's even before he paints a fully clothed woman naked without telling her, and then turns it around as if to say, "Ha ha! Appreciate my gesture." Weird little man, weird grotty man. <laughs> he has no place in this building, and I wish he was inside the building when it caught fire. No, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I, I regret saying that immediately. Mason really got really grinds your gears. <laughs> Mason. No, I. I mean, I agree. All... <laughs> I agree with all of the above. <laughs> yeah. I also, want to point out that uh, the year after this, Mason. Uh, the actor who plays Mason, who goes by the name of Dennis Boutsikaris, he plays uh, Sue Charlton's ex-boyfriend, uh, who instigates the narrative in Crocodile Dundee 2. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Bring <Crocodile>. it back. <laughs> so the second one... Christ! That's, that's, uh, whereas the first one was sort of a dappy fish-out-of-water comedy, the second one's a straight-up drugs thriller, and he's the one, he's yeah. like a, a journalist who's photographing oh, a God, I remember cocaine that ring yeah. in, in Colombia, yeah. And he gets shot and he mails the film canister to... Anyway, this is not a Crocodile Dundee 2 podcast. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> so I actually, on the topic of Mason, um, I mean, it's, it's, va- it's vaguely about Mason. Um, I sometimes, <laughs> when I watch a movie or when I'm looking into a movie, when I'm researching it, Sometimes I like to go on common sense media, I think it's yeah, called. Yeah. And because it's it's hilarious. I love common sense media because it's all these people basically being shocked about things that happen in the films. And so there's um one quote that I would like to read from common sense media about yes, please. batteries not included. And I feel like it's <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's relevant to Mason. So she goes, True, there is only the one painting scene but it is full on naked boob and nipple. I had to have a long talk with my nine-year-old daughter about it today. I don't miss you 1980s and your odd levels of inappropriateness. So there we go. So clearly how, she how... took issue with Mason as well. How long could that talk have been? I know. <laughs> so nipples. <laughs> Let's just go. 
<laughs> we all have them. They're not to be enjoyed. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I felt like um had to add that about Mason, clearly riling up a lot of people. Um Yeah. The, the, the extent of my notes on him just went, Who's this creepy budget Kurt Russell? <laughs> uh, I just what angered me the most as well about him was his fit of rage when he threw out his paintings. Like yes. you know, what an absolute child. So, you know, you <laughs> you decide to dedicate your life to being an impoverished artist, which clearly I don't think he's impoverished. I think he's a little rich boy who's just decided to yeah, live <laughs> a boho chic life. And he wants to then, live like common people. This is it. <laughs> so then he, in a fit of rage, chucks all of his quite, I mean, they're mediocre paintings anyway. So I'm not. Yeah, they ain't like, great, are they? Fair enough. <laughs> but it's just in this fit of rage. And then I can't remember. So Marissa, Marissa saves them and she brings them back. Yeah. Bless her. She's sweet. Mm-hmm. And then when yeah. he sees them, I don't think he says thank you. When he sees that she no, saved doesn't. them. And it's just like, how the fuck dare you, Mason? <laughs> like, you have this absolute attitude. And you're like, you're not even thankful that she saved your stupid paintings. He just has a whole bit where he's just like, which one's your favorite? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, no, let's just, just roll back, Mason. Let's yeah. roll it back. Yeah. What is it you like about my self-portrait so much? <laughs> while, he's got, while he's got milk droplets on his stupid beard. Although I did really enjoy her critique of that painting. Yeah, where yeah. It's yeah. like he's a he's a man who's literally one step away from the sunshine, yeah, in the shadows. I really like that reading. But that's because sweet, sweet Marissa. Exactly, because that's all on Marissa because mm-hmm. she's a babe and Mason yeah. is so undeserving. Yeah. And then when he like the other thing that really got my gears going was when he just puts his arm around her when they're on the rooftop. And it's like, did yes. she invite 100%. you to do this? <laughs> during, during, the, during the birth scene, right? Yes. I think it's the birth scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And well, it's, sort of, it's like this really nice scene. Everyone's excited to see the baby fix it. And it's like, they've maybe had two conversations at this point. And then he just drapes yeah. his stupid hairy arm over her. And it's like, who are you? What are mm. you doing? <laughs> Step away. Uh, yeah. And I think the second conversation they have was the one in which she mentions her baby daddy to him. So he knows about this one. And he reacts to that in a very shitty way. He's mm-hmm. like, oh, oh, I'm not interested in you now. He's like angry at her, almost. It's, it's a really yeah. strange sort of... Um... And even that next scene afterwards, um, when um, for, a, for a moment it looks like the, fi- uh, the Fix-Its have given birth to two healthy new robots, but one has ended up stillborn and they're burying the stillborn robot alien baby and he doesn't really see why I I, I got really angry Mm. with him as to why he couldn't see why Marissa would be upset about this action of these two beings losing a child and I, it really frustrated me how he was so confused that she would be so affected by this. Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah, I agree. That was really Damn ugly. Damn you, Mason. <laughs> Just an ugly, ugly that. character. Mm-hmm. Stupid mm-hmm. ass man. Don't like the Mason. <laughs> He's a stupid ass man. He is 100% stupid ass man. We hate him. But Marissa, <laughs> no one's got anything bad to say about her. She's an angel. No, she's a babe. Yeah, I hope she's, I hope she's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we talk a bit about the fix-its? Because mm. I have many, I have many questions about the fix-its. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's your first? Little, what's your first thought about them? Well, a little bit. I think they're they're wonderfully designed. Mm. They look they look really cute, and they have a lot of personality. Um, 
Ralph McQuarrie did a lot of the kind of robot designs for Star Wars is the guy who designed them, so I think it makes a yeah. lot of sense that they're these like full of character and uh, and really quite easy to uh, fall in love with. Um, to <laughs> to me, it's like the what is the limit limitations of their powers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, because the the fixes literally have like the the power to could I'm assuming reatomize anything to make anything broken yeah. fully repaired yeah to the point where they like all of them together can build uh whole blocks back to life yeah and it, it's implied at the end that there is this whole race out there that have now come to earth and my my, my question at the end was is this an invasion <laughs> <laughs> kill us with kindness <laughs> <laughs> What, what what were your guys' impression on the fix? It? <laughs> yeah, it's weird, like, what, what is the boundary of their powers? Like, can, can they can they create matter out of nothing? Can they kind of re- reverse time in a particular location? Like, what, <laughs> what is it that they do? Can they can they like fix abstract concepts like failure and loneliness? Like, <laughs> where's the end? I was like, if, if I like break my nail, can they just go like, just, yeah. or break my arm, and then again? <laughs> if I don't get a job, can they reverse the failure of an interview and like get it? I don't know. I mean, honestly. I had not thought about these questions. <laughs> like my my whole experience with the fixits was genuinely watching it, being like, "Damn, these are adorable," and just like letting them do their thing. So now the questions that you have planted in my brain, I'm like, "Oh shit, maybe they can like bring back the dead." Oh crap, yeah. maybe they can <laughs> fix yeah. anything, fix emotion. So um, yeah, the good. I mean, good points because. Up until now, I was just like, oh, they can fix the watch. They can fix the building. They can fix, you know, a toaster. Um, so, yeah. So, thank you. Now I'm going to be asking myself, haunted with these questions. What are they really here for? <laughs> well, the, the, the very first question I have, because they, they, when they come in the window, the first thing they do is they find a, a power socket and they, they plug themselves in. So, my question is... Mm. First of all, how many continents and countries within those continents did they first go to to try and find a plug socket that they were compatible with? And and second of all, do they have adapters built in? Surely. But it seems to imply that they kind of upgrade based on what materials are around them at one point as well, because there's mm. that part where the, the hand that comes out is made yeah, out of yeah. uh, tar- Mason's coffee yeah. pot. Mm. Um so I'm assuming they just managed to get hold of the pl- of a plug somewhere and find the means to, and they just so happen to go into this building okay. to find find a rest stop to reproduce. <laughs> <laughs> get down to it. Hop on the good foot and do the bad thing. Whatever their equivalent of feet are. <laughs> well, we get we get a little glimpse into. There's one scene where we get a. They kind of op- when they're opening him up, or mm. I think it's either Frank mm. or Faye. They kind of peek inside. Uh, one of the adults. Yeah, he's got his magnifying glass. Yeah, it's exactly. Mason, isn't it Mason? Oh, is they, it Mason? Because they, they, they don't like I it. Think it's Mason. They, they oh, lash out when he does that, yeah. Classic yeah. Mason snooping mm-hmm. around where he has no damn business. <laughs> but he, when he takes his magnifying glass and he looks inside, it's like all these little whizzing kind mm, of atomy yeah. parts, which I guess those are 
you know, maybe those are powered to, like you said, you know, they kind of create things when needed or on the go. Or I swear, like the mm-hmm. little when the little baby fix it, either Flotsam or Jetsam, whoever it is, is trying to learn how to fly at first, and then the mom pushes him off the <laughs> stairs, and he, all of a sudden he has like yeah, and he has these little <laughs> hands that kind of come up and grip, and it's like, okay, where did these hands come from? Like clearly, maybe he just, like created them. So I quite like the I like the idea that they kind of you know do these they're inspired by something or you know it's these kind of spontaneous creations um i quite like that yeah Mm. and i like that their relationship is kind of like it's not like they're just these magical beings that come down now and just willing to help them sort out they've got they've got their own shit to deal with they're like let's say they're trying to (laughs) they're, they're tired they're trying to start a family and uh papa fix it is clearly uh, very protective of his his wife i i guess i don't want to presume <laughs> and, 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 and i i really enjoy that there is like the this really good level of attitude to all of them like him being either really protective or the mm-hmm. the, the maternal fix, fix it being like more caring and a bit more uh a bit more paternal in some aspects and yeah and, and i i just like that it's not that they're there just to just for just for the sake of how helping these inhabitants mm-hmm. that they it's, it's weird there's weirdly a lot more going on in the background i feel yeah. between this alien species yeah. <laughs> like, there's a little aside i swear to god you know when carlos hits the the daddy one with an axe and he gets knocked down and, and don't remind me and, <laughs> and the neighbors are all discovering him and gathering around him and then the wife kind of flies over thinking what's going on here and then she sees him and i swear to god she goes ah I think yeah, she, she does. does. Yeah. She does. She lets her little yeah, scream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just, I love that bit where she's in childbirth and he's got the little Pepsi can and he's slicing it up for her yeah. and he's putting it on her little it's conveyor belt tongue. So <laughs> cute. It's so cute. It all gets me. It all gets me. Uh, and I, I really enjoy that James Horner's score kind of goes from like this quite sweet lullaby to then just like this kind of comedy like <laughs> it's great it's such a good score it's so it's it, such a good score just, at so many levels it, yeah. it, it just plays to each scene perfectly and you just really feel it it's it's yeah it's amazing yeah uh an- another character we haven't really talked about is uh harry the uh handyman in the in the building who's this ex-boxer and it's kind of, i read that apparently script versions originally had it a bit more um a, a bit more obvious that he was a prize fighter who had suffered brain damage in a fight and that's why he's as as kind of closed off and as uh uh kind of keeps himself to himself as much as he does and why he's so quiet but um what what are your kind of impressions of Harry? Because I, I really like, um, who's the actor? I get Frank mm-hmm. McRae. I really like him. Uh, he's always been, like, Licence to Kill was one of my favourite Bond films, and he's in that. So I was <laughs> I was like, hey, it's Sharky from Licence to Kill. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, he, he's always someone who has that kind of, uh, I'm going to say, like, 80s era Michael Clark Duncan sort of um, big gentle giant vibe to him that I worked for worked quite nicely for this character what what were your guys impressions of harry i i love harry i think he you know if frank and Faye are kind of the anchors of the film 
I think he's kind of the overlooked heart. Um, I, d- I think he is a very sweet and touching character. Um, I think it makes it clear enough that he's an ex-boxer, um, that he was this, you know, champion fighter. And obviously, like, he, I don't know if it's obvious um, to loads of people, but ev- obviously everything he says is a slogan yeah, from TV. Yeah, 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 yeah. So once you kind of pick up on the fact that he, you know, he's not necessarily saying full full constructed sentence i mean he is making sentences but it's not they're kind of injected in conversations and he's mostly quiet so i think that tells to the fact that clearly he got you know the shit hit out of him um you yeah know, and clearly maybe he's not all there or it's post-traumatic stress or it's trauma or something but i think all those elements really make you feel for him and i mean one my favorite scene in the film is towards the end when the little fix it that he has helped to save that he kind of brought back from the dead is helping fix the the tiled floor that that harry's Mm. been working so diligently on and that just that kills me every time because it's so sweet and harry's such i think he's a very tender character that for all the other people sort of loud talking and all the action and the whizzing and the flying and the fires and the hitting people with things i just think that he's a very sort of tender counterpart to that yeah agreed yeah it's, it's it was interesting seeing that side to him because i'm my main memory my main memory of, of him in film is as the the police chief and last action hero you know when he's shouting so much oh, yeah. later, <laughs> the steam comes out of his ears and i also uh during my big zemeckis rewatch of <laughs> lockdown one uh, he's in used cars as well and, and he plays a similar kind of bawdy you know one of the boys characters so I'm not used to seeing him being such a gentle... I mean, to your point, Andy, there was something a little bit Green Mile, uh, Mad Clark Duncan, about him, uh, I mm, think, in this. The sort of definitely. The, the hulking figure who's a, a tinkerer and a fixer. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like him. It's, it, I like him as a screen presence. I think some of the stuff that, that annoyed me about the um, slightly mechanical sentimentality of the film, I, I do kind of associate with the film's treatment of him and other characters, like all, 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 almost sort of, patronizing approach to him as a character um but i don't know i it's, it was nice enough i suppose I, it did, didn't didn't quite break through my usually easy to pierce heart. <laughs> <laughs> um but no i i, I also yeah. i also really love when he goes out to times square to yeah. find the little fix it and he has the dog whistle and then this one random dog starts following him and then just stays <laughs> yeah, with him for the yeah. rest of the movie. I was so happy. <laughs> I was so happy this dog stayed. <laughs> but I also thought that detail was a cute nod to the fact that clearly he doesn't want to give up his little buddy, his little, you know, yeah, his little fix it yeah. buddy, but clearly by the end he has to so that, you know, it can return buddy. return home and so now he has the dog. So I quite like that. I mean, it's a random yeah. thing to put in, but I quite like it that it's almost i was very happy about it yeah it's it's like a reassurance to the audience like don't Mm -hmm. worry he's gonna be okay because it would be hard like for me (laughs) that's the kind of thing that would you know i may not cry but it would heartbreak me to see him lose his buddy and then just be alone with his jar of tiles but if he has a dog then you're kind of like, okay, he's, he's going to be okay. He's going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> and another addition to the pantheon of great ambling dogs. We haven't really mentioned this for a while, I suppose, because there hasn't been much cause yeah, to discuss ambling dogs. a few dogs. missing dogs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the hallowed halls of ambling dog fame. 
Welcome to the Pantheon, Times Square, dog. <laughs> Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> um, I kind of want to get your thoughts on, like, you, you've met, you mentioned it earlier, but the, the final shot I find quite interesting mm. in that, like, this house has been rebuilt by um, the race of fi- fix-its, and it's now still standing amongst this kind of big metropolitan area. And you only see it from a distance, but by by all accounts, do we all agree that it looks like the cafe is thriving and they're all mm, doing okay? Because yeah. I, I was sat there going like, "Is this a good thing?" <laughs> <laughs> I think I think for sure. I think you know they've been able to stand up against the the evil land developer people and they're wedged there between these two high rises, thriving, yeah. doing their thing. Mm-hmm. I like to think that the office workers who are in those high rises pop mm-hmm. by get a burger get yeah. a cup of coffee and you know they're they're just standing there tall and proud or not so tall and proud but they're standing there and just <laughs> yeah. serving the new community and they yeah. they represent like you know we don't need to get rid of things we can keep things as you know place markers of history and yeah and exactly so <laughs> that's, how, that's how i see it <laughs> i think yeah. they'll be the beneficiaries of gentrification guilt of the city banker workers yeah. that occupy the buildings now yeah. so i think <laughs> i think they'll be okay <laughs> yeah it reminded me of the Stuart little house yeah I'm just gonna, yeah i'm just going to assume that hugh laurie and gina davis moved into it um, <laughs> and also in the late 90s, yeah early a little bit up as well a little bit up as well when it's placed in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh Definitely. Well, now I'm thinking about the opening of Up and... Uh, no. <laughs> dangerous game. It's Wilson all over again. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> oh, dear me. Uh, one little, speaking of sort of closing visuals, one little visual touch that I... I, I uh, a little cutesy, but I did quite like is you're introduced, by, you're introduced to Faye via a close-up of her feet and she's got odd shoes on. And then one of the final mm. times you see Faye is as, as she's walking over the, the newly tiled floor at the end, and she's now got two matching shoes. So it's, uh, I don't think it's implying that her dementia has been fixed, because, you know, that would be glib and inappropriate. But I think it's certainly saying that she now, she, she's more at peace. She's, like, found a missing piece of herself. She's, you know, she's able to, 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 to move on and deal with it. I, th- I think it was a nice little bit of visual, uh, visual rhyming there, which I... Quite like. Absolutely. And I think even if, like you say, it clearly doesn't mean her dementia has been cured or anything, but no. I think it could also sort of signal like everything is now right mm-hmm. around her. Yeah. Like she's yeah. she's more yeah. at peace, like you say, and you know, if Frank is helping her get dressed or whatever, he's less stressed by everything and he can find yeah. the right yeah. shoes. There's you know, everything has been realigned to yeah. to match in life and in her shoes, which <laughs> Is a great thing. Yeah, sure. She has the stability. God bless yeah. Tandy. <laughs> there is just something about seeing. I, my, my the, uh, I'm an easy cry. The, the the one thing that's guaranteed to to get my girlfriend to cry is seeing old people on screen in any state of emotion. Basically, because of the experience that's etched into their faces, the depth of their eyes, and I think this film um, really has fish in a barrel when it comes to sort of eking out tears because. These performers, I think the performers in particular are so good at their roles. Um, they're, they're so good at, 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 you know, etching out these these long lives that they've lived and, and um, conveying such a deep relationship. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm trying to think if I actually cried now or if I, I just felt <laughs> moved in places. 
But now it's uh, yeah. I mean, showing Pete. I mean, the, the thing it was very distressing at the start seeing uh, seeing Frank being threatened by the the, the hooligans when he was like, dragged out of the diner yeah. and held down. Mm. That was incredibly distressing to to see someone, you know, in mid to late seventies in a, in a state of physical um, threat. Yeah, that's a quick way to get the emotions working. I think. <laughs> Definitely. Mm. <laughs> uh, one kind of like lingering thought i had at the end and it was something i googled to see whether it was actually anything ever considered is a kind of a, the idea of a remake around this because mm. it was part of me just sat there thinking about how this would play out in a in a world now where we drones are just something that fly around and how that would play it play a part but it doesn't doesn't seem to be one of these 80s properties that anyone's tapped yet um but i'm sure give it time they they'll find find the intellectual properties that haven't been <laughs> haven't been mined yet <laughs> but is it is it is it something you could see, see working at all or <laughs> i definitely like i think i'd be if they announced that they were going to make a remake i'd probably be mad at first because i get quite <laughs> mm-hmm. defensive when people try to mess with things i am that person who's like why are you doing this why are you messing with something that's not broken um in my opinion that's not broken but i i think that batteries not included is very much before its time this is something that i've been thinking about i think you know you have the sort of the hipster you have the pregnant single mother you have you know elderly fashion which is great like senior fashion it's amazing you know and then obviously you have this family film that is about gentrification at the core of it it's about gentrification and the evils of it and which i think is quite amazing for a family film because you know it it's it's not just for kids, it's for adults too. And there's enough within the film for, you know, both parties to enjoy and to take away from. And even as a little kid, I didn't quite get the concept of, I didn't know the word gentrification. I didn't know what it was, but obviously I could tell that, you know, people building and overtaking a place and putting up these, you know, taking away its history, that's a bad thing. So I think implanting the thought that gentrification is quite well I'm, I'm not a fan of gentrification so um so i think this whole concept is is very before its time and really nice so i can see that those themes and those um sort of images could be done in a similar way today because yeah. we still have the issues of gentrification you know we still have these sort of characters of the hipster artist you have you know different issues that would be as relevant today as they are you know, maybe in a slightly different frame, but they are still relevant. So I, I could see it definitely working as a remake mm. in some way. Yeah, yeah, that that, that was beautifully put. I've nothing to add to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was beautifully put. Thank, Thank you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, unless you guys have other points uh, you wanted to make, I, I, we've got a couple of tweets that have been sent in about the movie that we'll share but by all means if you've got any other areas you'd like to discuss before that let me know Dennis Boussakaris was in Crocodile Dundee 2. No, I think I've got everything <laughs> covered. That's the big, I think... big bold highlight. <laughs> I will say, I do find it interesting, my, my last little point, um, I do find it really interesting that in lots of other countries because the the title batteries not included is so synonymous with a certain kind of era and a part of 
history in the 80s, because obviously it kind of it nods to the fact that there was this 80s toy boom. And on loads mm. of these toys, you'd see batteries not included because it was a warning for the parents like, oh, you're going to buy this toy for your kid. But, you know, don't be mad if it doesn't work because you got to buy batteries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so it would be this batteries not included. And it was, you know, really well known as a sentence because they'd even say it in adverts and things. But clearly, I don't know if that translated. It clearly didn't translate to other countries because um, the alternate title in a lot of countries was Miracle on 8th Street, which mm-hmm. I find kind of weird because it's obviously a nod to Miracle on 34th Street, which is a Christmas movie. And I'm like, it's it's not Christmas and Batteries Not Included. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, like, they're both set in New York. I get it. And obviously, there is this sort of theme of a miracle happening. So maybe I've just talked myself into accepting it. But um, I just, <laughs> but I find it, I find it, that was something that kind of um, mm. piqued my interest when I was reading about the film and, and noticed that, yeah, that clearly people didn't really like the whole batteries not included mm. or didn't resonate yeah. in other countries um, yeah. as it did in the US. Yeah. Been a bit of a trend in, in like uh, that Harry and the Hendersons in a space this of, of Amblin, you know, mishan- or, you know the, the, the distributor rather, uh, mishandling the marketing of the film and uh, mm. Harry and the Hendersons yeah. was renamed as Bigfoot and the Hendersons in the UK and he was foregrounded on the, on the posters and stuff whereas in America he wasn't in a space you know the posters for that are like a, a big finger and thumb holding a tiny pod does not convey the tone at all. So like the mid like eighties, they were having a bit of a strange time in marketing these films. It seems. Well, yeah. Because also on the poster for the U.S. poster, you have it leaves more mystery to it because you have a picture of um, Frank and Faye in bed, and then mm. the two fixits kind of floating over them, and you're kind of thinking, "Oh, are these bad aliens? Mm. Alien robots? Are these good aliens?" So it leaves a bit more to the imagination. But in a lot of other countries, yeah. I'm thinking about Japan. I think it's Japan, for instance. Their poster for it, it was basically the entire family of fixits, and everyone like around them smiling or looking happy or whatever. Yeah. And it's sort of like, okay, well, you, the jig is up with this. Like we know what. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no mystery here. Oh it's yeah, just one big happy yeah. Family. they're all there. Yeah. <laughs> just googled it now. I can see it. Very bizarre. But the, the yeah. American poster is a beautiful Drew Sturzen, uh, you know, painting. It's it's really yeah. it's really nice. That's beautiful. Remember that in our beds, uh, bedroom and community as well. Uh, <laughs> <I think yeah. laughs> cool, cool. I was like, oh yeah, that film. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting how many of these like really nostalgic images of these kind of posters as well. And I guess the kind of or like part of the sad truth as to why you don't see a great deal more of these hand drawn posters in this day and age is because they often tended tended to be quite difficult to market to other other territories mm. and, and I, I, do, I, I am glad that they do have like this kind of great love and appreciation in a lot, a lot of pockets of uh, film fandom now these kind of hand drawn approaches <laughs> and it is one of the better ones <laughs> alrighty um, we had a couple of tweets from some listeners about uh, batteries not included uh, thank you for tweeting if you want to tweet at Ramblin Amblin <laughs> Our first one is from On Second Watch Podcast, uh, who got in touch to say, this is such a fun 80s film. Frank and Faye are like your lovable grandparents, and I couldn't agree more. Oh, <laughs> so true. So many times I was petrified for the two. Yeah. <laughs> Pure, sweet Frank and Faye. Uh, yeah. We also had word from the aforementioned Griff from the Money Pit episode at the Enigma Griff on Twitter. 
Love this film. It's so quirky and different. They don't make films like this anymore. And that is a real shame. And uh, it is. <laughs> it is a real shame. It is. You don't see these kind of like, again, madcap and original uh, family sci-fi comedies about yeah. gentrification. It's just not done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got to say, I, uh, I, I came in this a bit of a grump. I do think that, that between you, but you know, mainly Steph has talked me around. So I'm uh, thinking, yay. Ma- maybe I was in a, a grumpy mood when I was watching. We the fixed thing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just about brings us to an end of our episode on Asterix batteries not included. In our next episode, we'll be opening up the case file of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Robert Zemeckis' 1988 live-action animation hybrid noir, which you also don't get enough of these days. No, absolutely not! (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely love Who Framed Roger Rabbit. We need more weird blockbusters, of which Wild Wild West is very much one, you know? Yes. People don't make weird shit anymore. We'll wait and see how Space Jam 2 does, Let's I guess. Do not even go off. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> um, if you don't happen to have the film to disc and would like to watch it ahead of the episode along with us, it is available to stream for those of you that have a Disney Plus subscription or a Virgin Go subscription. Or otherwise, you can rent or buy the film digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Chili, Google Play, Microsoft Store. Rakuten TV, Sky Store, and Talk Talk TV. And as someone who is a Talk Talk Wi-Fi customer, I did not know that Talk Talk TV <laughs> has a thing. <laughs> uh, as Andy mentioned, if you've got any thoughts on the film ahead of next episode, you can tweet us at Ramblin Amblin, or you can email your thoughts uh, uh, to ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. Nailed it. You're really named the dot com business after the dot co uk fiasco. I have uh, <laughs> a few wayward weeks of saying dot co uk, and I still I still have a degree of uh, uncertainty. <laughs> I gaslight myself. <laughs> and another thing I just wanted to say before we say our goodbyes is that um, there was some sad news in Hollywood this week oh, with yeah, the passing yeah. of R- Richard Donner at the age of ninety one, the, the director, of course, behind the Amblin classic, The Goonies among many other things, including Superman the movie and the Lethal Weapon franchise. And it's been lovely seeing all these like really sweet Hollywood stories coming out about how 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 sweet a guy and nice a guy and supportive a player Dick Donner was to the people in his lives, both within film and on a personal level. So yeah. R. I. P. Richard Donner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but we, we look forward to getting back to action with Who Framed Roger Rabbit in our next episode. I just, that's Again, like you say, Steph, it's just one of those absolutely harebrained classics <laughs> from, a, from a childhood. And I, like, <laughs> I, I'm worried about the length of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank, thank you so much for joining us uh, this episode on Batteries Not Included, Steph. It's been an absolute joy yeah, to have you. It's been a you. great time. Thank you so much. I've had so much fun. I've <laughs> loved going down memory road with you guys and uh, discussing Lovely. the ins and outs of it. So thank you so much. Of course, of course. Is there, is there anywhere the good listeners can 
find you on the social media should they feel so inclined? I mean, I'm a bit of a ghost. I've taken a bit of a, a social media sabbatical, but you can find me. You can hunt me down on uh, Twitter. <laughs> um, my handle is Steph Branded. So S-T-E-P-H-B-R-A-N-D-E-D, Steph Branded. Um, so that's where most of my activity will be. Or you can find me on Instagram under the same handle as well. Awesome. Thank you so much again. It's been an absolute delight. And thank you, Josh, as well. It's always always good to see your face on these things. Always as well. a pleasure, mate. Always a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, thank you, of course, dear listeners, for tuning in once again to Ramblin' and Amblin' podcast. And we look forward to welcoming you back for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Until then, take care of each other and see you next time.